This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. A critical issue in terms of the public debate has been what in the world is our government doing? American leaders have been lying to the Congress to the media, to the American public about what they are doing and what they aren't doing. Snowman wasn't a gatherer. Snowman was a hunter. I don't think it's important for us to label him as a traitor. I think it's enough for us to label him as a despicable um, human being and citizen. I did it only because it was the lesser of evils. Just saying and toning the word national security can never be enough. We won't look at it, trust us, we won't look at it unless we really need to. And only then will the government know that they've gotten their pound of flesh and it's often going to be the intelligence community that wants their drop of blood. The whole world is on fire. This is the most harmful, most serious hemorrhaging of legitimate American secrets in the history of the Republic. Major funding for Legally Speaking was provided by the law firm of Girardi Keith, fighting for the right side. On September 11, 2001, America and its national security picture changed radically. Few dispute that. What people do disagree about is how the nation should have reacted to this new challenge. In late 2012, an NSA contractor named Edward Snowden leaked almost 200,000 classified documents to the press, exposing inner secrets about the scope and methods of American intelligence gathering, making him a hero to some and a traitor to others. During this program, we hypothetically put both Snowden and the NSA program on trial. Charlie Savage, it's 6.30 a.m., you're about to walk the dog, get a call on your cell. It says no caller ID. Now, normally you wouldn't answer that, especially since the dog really needs a walk. But your reporter's intuition is tingling. You answer the phone. The voice says, is this Charlie Savage of the New York Times? I would say, yes, this is. What can I do for you? I work for an NSA contractor, and I have a very high security clearance. I have four computer hard disks full of documents, top secret and classified documents, showing that the United States government is gathering information on phone calls, emails, texts of ordinary Americans. You interested? And I would, of course, say, yes, I am. How can we meet? Well, before we get to that, I have very high encryption standards because there's a lot of documents here that can't fall into the wrong hands. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So are you willing to meet my encryption standards? Absolutely. And this is an interesting thing about this moment in time in journalism because six months ago, I would not have had a clue how to do that. I would have had to go teach myself. I would have had to call the New York Times' information technology department to be brought up to speed on basic things like using uh, encrypted emails, encrypted text messaging, and, and encrypted chats. And now 
I think it's more and more the norm in newsrooms that we ha we are already up to speed on this. We one of the revelations, uh, the consequences of the uh, revelations of the past six months has been a belated recognition among uh, at least national security reporters and across America that we need to be smarter about our communications. And at this point, I would be able to comply with a request like that uh, without effort. So the press is making itself even more hospitable to people like me? Well, we're at least trying to not be stupid. <laughs> All right. General Hayden, it's three days later, 6.30 a.m. You, you hear a familiar slap on your driveway. <clears throat> it's the morning New York Times. <clears throat> you go out, you pick it up, you open it up, it says... Leaked documents show vast U.S. spying on most citizens. What's your first thought? Well, the first thought would be how did this get into the public domain? Uh, my second thought, just based on the headline you've, you've just shown, is that it's either inaccurate or incomplete. And my third thought would be to get my lawyer in my office when I got to work, because almost certainly we'd have to file a crimes report. What's the first actual phone call that you would make? Uh, look, the story's already out there. There's no stopping the story. There's no influencing the publisher or the editor to pull back on a few details or, or things. The first thing you want to look at is what does it say? What if it's true? What if it is untrue? And how does it affect our operations? So I would probably call the lawyer. And if I were at NSA, I'd call the head of the Signals Intelligence Directorate as well to see what kind of damage this might do. Well, you are. Let's let's say you are the director, uh, the, the the director of intelligence, the national director. Of okay. We don't know how much information Mr. Savage has, do we? So he's published a certain amount of it already. It's already appeared on your driveway. That's out. And as you say, you have to do a certain amount of damage control with respect to that. But what about with respect? to the other documents that he might have. We don't know how many documents he has. What, what will you do about that? Well, to a first order, uh, it would be a very good thing if he and I already had a relationship, that the first time we're talking isn't when he's accusing us of something. The scenario we're unplaying, the newspaper wouldn't hit his doorstep and that would be the first he heard of it. Right. Responsible journalism would be when we're preparing to publish a story like that, we would go to the government and say... We're going to report the following things. What is your response? And if they want to raise concerns at that point, this conversation that we're discussing now would ensue. Uh, we wouldn't say maybe well, down the road we're going to publish a bunch of other stuff, but each story as things came up would lead to this conversation. So we would have a conversation probably, or someone in his role, about the facts to whatever extent they're able to, con you know, under classification constraints, talk around problems to make... Uh, and we would make the pitch, of course, you know, if there are safeguards or, you know, extra nuances or details or limits that aren't reflected in these documents, that a more complete uh, public understanding of the program uh, would need to know about, this is your opportunity to not have something hanging out there that might create false impressions. So let's have a, you know, we would make a pitch for a fuller briefing. Maybe they would give us that. Maybe they wouldn't. Would you? 
Yeah, no, we would. And, and I would say in this dialogue, you know, that we both have a job to do, but how uh, you're doing yours and so on. Three out of four cases affected the story. Now, in some cases, it was the story's not going. In other cases, the story was held. Um, in More often than not, the case was the story was modified. This was pulled back. That wording. Let me give you a, a, just a, a true example. Okay. It seems minor, but uh, when I was director of NSA, we talked to one journalist, and we said, look, we don't want you going with this story at all. But if you're going with it, there's one thing we want you to change. This line here that said this was based upon intercepted communications. Could you just simply say this was based on intelligence reports? And the reporter said, you're kidding. I could, no, that's a big deal. He said, sure. So in some cases, the, the reporter doesn't have sufficient background to understand that they can do their task under the Constitution and still make it easier for me to do mine under the Constitution just by the way some data is presented. Okay, so it's not always just a, a, a full-on conflict. Sometimes it's just uh, a lack of information. And- right, and, 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 and Charlie just mentioned some, sometimes, you know, although you, sometimes you can't confirm the story, sometimes you can begin with, if that were true, let me tell you the constraints under which that would happen. The hypothetical. Which then, which then illuminates what it is he's writing. That's right. So there, there, are, there are different categories of things that this conversation may be about. It may be... Uh, this information is wrong or incomplete, and let me tell you the following things, and you know maybe with a fig leaf of not confirming it. But uh, or there could be the category of we know you're not going to re- suppress the entire story, uh, but and we can't force you to because it's a free country. But there's this one piece of information that we're up on a particular cell phone, or that has some kind of operational threat that does not have policy implications. The story is true and can be completely digested by the public whether or not the, this source and method is revealed to the world. And, and the editors then, not the reporter, would make the decision about whether that fact needed to be in the paper or whether the story was complete enough without it. Or there may be a request, you will have blood on your hands <clears throat> if this appears in the paper and the whole thing should be suppressed. Either way, keeping information out of the paper is not part of the conversation with the reporter. The, no. the facts of what the program is or how it works, that's the conversation with the reporter. What appears in the New York Times is not my pay grade, but people several grades higher than me. But this can okay. become a very deep conversation in which the government side also takes some chances. I mean, it has happened in real life. Where Reporters had a story, agreed not to go with the story because of the operational impact. But we've agreed that if we hear or sense any other reporters sniffing around that storyline, we owe it to the original discoverer to let them know. And so we've, they and don't we've done that. Scooped. And we've yes, that's right. All right. Well, this sounds like an amicable arrangement. Hmm. At least not on always the, <laughs> on the surface. <laughs> on the surface, it sounds like at least. We're going to make the press. We're, the the story is going to appear. Joe Russinello, you are the recently appointed U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, a district in which Edward Snowman's former contracting firm happens to do business. Talk about what kind. Well, first, let me ask you. Do you want the lead on this prosecution, or is it going to be a nightmare? Oh, no, I, I want the lead. Um, I would do anything uh, to be the <laughs> you don't chief prosecutor. That. <laughs> I would, I would. Okay. I've, I've done it before, so it's not <laughs> that I would, people it's would say that. It's very candid of you. Well, 
But as I, w- as I was listening to the scenario that you were putting together here, I was thinking in terms of uh, what is there, is, there a, is there a criminal violation, a potential criminal violation that occurred in my district? Uh, is my district better than any other district for prosecuting it? And, and who are likely to be, you know, the targets of the, uh, of the prosecution? And at first I was thinking, well, it's the leaker, whoever that happens to be, and uh, it may well be this uh, Mr. Snowman, and maybe a uh, conspiracy with, um, with uh, Charlie Savage, you know, and so on. And then after listening to Mike Hayden, I'm thinking maybe Mike ought to be in the... <laughs> well, this is, this is part of the, of the sort of real world that, uh, that we live in. But I, I, I think... You know, in terms of the venue, clearly not only whether or not Snowman personally or his contractor have, or his employer have, a, have an association with the district, but where the intelligence was, um, uh, was basically, um, you know, located and uh, where it likely was taken from originally, okay. the repository. And so the Eastern District would be the logical place. That's all in, in terms of the technical. In terms of the atmospherics and so on, I think that juries in this district would be much more sensitive, in the Eastern District, much more sensitive. As opposed to? As opposed to other parts of, you know, in the, in the, on the West Coast, for example, um, places like San Francisco or uh, certainly Silicon Valley, where more information disclosed, the better, no matter what it is. Uh, there really is no such thing as confidentiality. The, these, uh, you know, calibrations of confidentiality, of top secret, secret, confidential, those things don't really mean all that much. They shouldn't mean all of that much. Um, but in, the, in an area where there's high uh, concentration of, of government interests, I think people are much more uh, sort of sympathetic and receptive to the idea that the government acts uh, for the protection of the, of the public. And uh, the bombing of the Pentagon is still fresh in the minds of many people. And so they know there's a real enemy out there uh, that uh, can benefit from the disclosure of some of this stuff. So uh, this would be all of the argument for why it should be prosecuted uh, here. And I think uh, clearly in terms of uh, is there a violation? Uh, I think there is a violation pretty clearly uh, on, just on the basis of what little we know at this point. Um, there appears to be enough to, to indicate that a person has furnished information to an unauthorized person uh, that relates to um, uh, communicated uh, intelligence, uh, which would be harmful to the interests of the United States or that's been designated by an agency of the United States government um, for limited dissemination and distribution. Is that the so-called espionage count? Well, that would be... That would be um, uh, one of the uh, 798 would, would be the, the particular of offense that would apply there. There are others as well, theft of government property. Uh, there's the retention of... Is that an easy one? Is that a slam dunk, the theft of theft government property? Theft of government property? property? Uh, probably. Um, uh, is the espionage count a slam dunk? It's pretty, pretty close to the same sort of thing, but in the, in the guise of uh, co- the confidentiality of the information. So that, well, it's not just a government property that can be identified, but it's a uh, government property of a high uh, importance to national security. So the penalties will be greater, and certainly that's a consideration that comes much later at the time of sentencing, but it certainly is a motivation for bringing these, these, both of these charges, at least both of these charges, and okay. others. So the mere retention of the documents or uh, the failure to, dis- to turn over the information that you have to an authorized person are both violations of another section of the, uh, of the Espionage Act, 793. I notice that one word has not come through your lips in particular, and that's treason. Now, a lot of people think that somebody in Snowman's position is guilty of treason, giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Why hasn't this been part well, of the monologue? Treason has a, treason has a, a, a sort of um, common uh, definition, and uh, uh, not everybody who's a leaker is necessarily a traitor. 
uh, everybody who's a, uh, who's a spy, that is somebody who's a, an American citizen who's engaged in uh, espionage, is a traitor. Um, so but, you say, what, what's the key thing for, for treason here then? It's, it's actual communications with an enemy? Yeah, it's, uh, communica- it's kind of an communications agreement? with a foreign government. It's actually, it's the communication of the information which is in the national security interest to a foreign government. That's, that's what I think is the general understanding. Well, it's happening here through an intermediary. Well, it is. Uh, that's right. It is. But I think it's, the, it's, the, it's a nuanced uh, situation. It's more subtle. I don't think it's important for us to label him as a traitor. I think it's enough for us to label him as a despicable um, human being and citizen who is acting out of a sort of um, self-righteousness and, and, and personal uh, interest. That is that he thinks that he's more knowledgeable, more important. Um, than a system of laws, and that he somehow or another uh, transcends that. And um, it's important for us in bringing a prosecution to make sure that um, both in terms of a specific deterrent, that he gets the message that he's not, and as a general, general deterrent, that everybody else gets the um, message that they're not. Abby Lowell, <clears throat> through a complicated series of communications, you end up with the representation of Edward Snowman. What's that initial client consultation going to sound like? This is not your average case, is it? No, but there was no such thing as an average case, I think. But in the area of when the words are espionage, even though it's the act's name, when it is about something where General Hayden is going to be talking to the press and saying, what a grave harm this has caused to national security, it has ramifications different than if it was the insider trading case or bank fraud case that might otherwise come. So that first uh, meeting with Mr. Snowman is going to have to take a while. Um, and uh, it's How's it going to start? <laughs> uh, depending on where it takes place, I wish it would take place somewhere overseas hmm. before he had gotten back here. That would be ideal. Um, and That's gone now. So. <laughs> so if it's going to be taking place in some sort of an incarcerated facility, um, seriously, the first goal is going to be to get him out, if that's humanly possible. The ability of somebody to defend him or herself when he or she is incarcerated in a case like this with all of its dimensions is very, very difficult. And the pressure on somebody not to be able to defend him or herself is immense if that were the case. So we'll talk about what is the ability to find a way out. Okay. All right. So that's What's up big, next? That's a big topic. The second topic is I want to know very quickly what else there is that he has. I want to know that for a lot of reasons, but one of which is I want to know what, if any, leverage there is in terms of being able to figure out a better situation for him, whether that is... Now, what, be, by what else you mean? How much more Correct. That has not already oh. found its way into Charlie's hands. Okay. Um, if there is any. Okay. And that's valuable on any number of ways, but one of ways is that it enhances his position to negotiate his way out of jail, and it enhances his position to determine whether he can negotiate his way out of the jam. Now, the total jam. He may not want a negotiation, but it would be irresponsible to not find that out. So you want to know that. Okay. And then you want to go through all the things you have now enumerated in order to show him what his potential defenses are to what has just happened. And um, it is the proverbial being like an ant in a picnic basket. You know, so much to do, so little time. Because there's a lot of defenses. All right. Well, this client knows his own mind. This client thinks, at least, that he knows what he wants. And one of the things he wants is to put the government through, it, through its paces. He says, Mr. Lowell, 
I don't want to admit that I have leaked any of these documents to the press. I want to force Mr. Rusinello to prove that I was the one. I want the government, in essence, to have to prove that Mr. Savage didn't get his documents from an independent source. It's going to be hard. I think that's going to be hard to prove. So what do you think? Is, is that possible? Do you think they're going to, you think the judge is going to let, uh, let us uh, go that way? So if there is a case in which you can contest that you are not the source of what Charlie put in the paper, and then you don't want to give that up ever. And you want to put the government through its paces of showing. And what you know is that when there's one source, there's usually more than one. And so consequently, that allows the defendant to put at issue whether he is the source and whether he's the only source. That leads to a laundry list of things that Mr. Snowman has to consider. And that's the ability to bring into this case the issue of what's called selective prosecution. Why are you going after me when everybody else does it? It allows him to put into place whether or not he's not just the source, but whether the material is actually national defense well, let's, information. Uh, can we go back to the selective prosecution uh, idea? Uh, now, I can't, I can't tell you that there are other people out there, other people with access to the information that I've had, who have done this same sort of thing. So is that going to be a problem for this selective prosecution uh, defense? It's not necessarily going to be, again, taking it to the next step. If there's an indictment and we get into the period of discovery, the exchange of information between the government and the defendant and vice versa, one is going to be able to ask the government to provide quite a lot of information, including quite a lot of classified information that will show the source of the material, where it was distributed, who else had access to it, who else might have had the ability to talk to Charlie Savage and others, and that becomes something in play. So it's theoretically possible, but it's also not just whether he's the source, but whether the material is actually that kind of material that fits under the statute. Not all classified information is national defense information. We know about overclassification, and we're going to put all those issues in contest. I think Mr. Rusinello's ears are burning. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> now I have another defendant. No, uh, not really. Um, I, I, but this is a, a serious issue. I think the the, uh, the same questions that Abby's asking his client, I'm asking of uh, of Mike and his team here. Uh, how much has he gotten? What does he have? What's what uh, what is it that's going to be at risk here? Uh, that we're going to have to disclose in order to make our case. In other words, how much leverage does he right. really have? And I, and I think the badminton um, a bird in the, this game is really uh, Charlie Savage. N- nobody wants to call Charlie Savage as, as his own witness. I want Charlie Savage to be on the other side of the prosecution of the case. Well, why I want that? the defense to have to. Because I, he's, quite frankly, in my mind, I'm a prosecutor, a cynic, uh, I view him as a an aider and a better. He's an he's an, an unindicted co-conspirator. An unindicted co-conspirator, and so at least in the portrayal of how this case is folding out here, uh, despite the best efforts of uh, Michael to sort of uh, insulate him, um, I want him to have to be called if if by anyone by the defense. We'll do everything that we can to be able to demonstrate that that Snowman is the source by by narrowing it down to he's the only person that had all of this information at the time that it was disclosed, and that his telephone logs show that he's the only person who made those calls, or calls were made from his, his phones and so on, to be able to establish circumstantially that he's the person um, you know, who is the source of that information. We have reason to expect that everything that Snowden, Snowman has taken, he has disclosed. 
So we have to believe that from our side, we've already built up an apparatus to be able to neutralize the harm that's been done by the disclosure. So a lot of what we're talking about in terms of wanting to protect information. Yeah, ne neutralize how? Well, neutralize it in the sense that if it's something that, that identifies a particular technology or technique that we use, uh, and so it's been compromised by the disclosure, we, we go to a second channel. We go to another way of being able to gather the information without having to rely on that one anymore because it isn't worth anything. It's been basically compromised. You know, that, compromised. Evan, that, that, that line is moving, and it's very important to understand that. Which line? Uh, well, I was 10 years at the national level, at the National Security Agency and at CIA. By my last year or two at CIA, when we had these, these kinds of cases, you're always faced with the issue. How much more do you want to put out there publicly in order to have a successful prosecution. And, and that has always been a deterrent to, to successful prosecution. It's actually so been there's a, a cost-benefit analysis. Right. And it's, all, it's even been a deterrent to yeah. pursue a case. And a tension. It's a yeah. tension that internally yeah. within the government exists right. between prosecutors and, um, you know, and spies. But, um, it's just, it's basically, yeah. uh, we have a totally, not totally, but we have a different perspective in terms of our obligations to the court, in terms of our, but, our need but, to prosecute. But what had happened... Okay, but my last years at CIA was that these individually defensible, even tactically correct decisions not to disclose information and thereby undercut the prosecution or even even pursuing the case. The, the sum total of those tactically individually correct decisions was a strategic disaster. Yeah. That information was leaking left and right with no consequences. And so I made the decision in one particular case, and I, I won't identify yeah. it, but in one particular case, my answer to the prosecution was whatever you need in terms of disclosing. Yeah, but, you know, I have to say that one of the problems that this raises is the fact that they have one tool to use, and they use it across the board, and you've already identified the Espionage Act in, in that fashion. And when General Hayden says we have to be careful about the strategic decisions we make and the harm-cost-benefit analysis, that makes sense when you're actually looking to prosecute somebody engaged in spying, somebody who is betrayed the FBI like a Robert Hansen. But when it's somebody who is in his or her job just talking or working with the media in what we now call leak cases, that cost-benefit analysis is of a different nature. And unfortunately, we only have one tool in our lexicon that works in both extremes. And that's one of the problems that exists. But, but Evan, I mean, let me just add, all right, there are solutions to that. There are other tools. And every time I mention an official secrets act to people like we have mm -hmm. gathered here at the table, I don't get much support. Uh, well, and gratefully so. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let me, let me add one yeah. thing. Really, I just can't let it go uncontested, the notion that a journalist is an aiding and better <laughs> I was uh, criminal leak, uh, a conspirator indicted un or otherwise. There has never been a prosecution of a journalist in this country on those grounds. It is the stated policy of the Justice Department, maybe not this, in this particular prosecutor's mind, or, but uh, in this scenario, but it's the stated policy of the Justice Department not to bring those cases. They found themselves in the midst of a firestorm in the Kim case, uh, with Rose. Abby's li yeah. uh, uh, yeah. client, when they merely said in a, to a oh. judge, this guy is a, uh, this reporter may be guilty of uh, aiding and abetting because it looked like they were coming close to crossing a line that has never been crossed in this country. Yeah. And the reason that line hasn't been crossed is because we have the First Amendment. Okay. We're crossing those lines all the time, though. We're crossing those lines with individuals who are, who are setting themselves up as basically paragons of, uh, of correctness here. Uh, and, I'm, and, and whatever may be the Department of Justice 
Justice's policy. It uh, sort of was somewhat undercut by what it did in the in the Rosen case. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and I I would fight and argue that it um, it's a it's an artificial construct. Well, and also well, the line gets a little blurry when you start talking about the internet and sources of uh, 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 you know the, the expansion of uh, of who's a journalist now in ways that they were. Thank never you, Judge. Submitted. <laughs> right. But you know, one last point on what the last three comments were. Uh, I realize that the government of the United States has not yet ever brought a criminal case under the Espionage Act or any of the permutations against a member of the media or whoever will be defined in the world we live in to be a journalist. But having named a journalist and that reporter's organization as a co-conspirator in this case that I'm working on is really a brave new world because what it did do was allow the government to go after that reporter's personal identifiable material, his cell phone records, his email accounts in ways that had not been done before. The step between that and then taking the next step is not as wide as people think. Okay. Uh, well, from Mr. Rusinello's standpoint, kind of the worst has come to worst, and you do have to subpoena Mr. Savage. It turns out that there is no other way in this particular case. So uh, the case has come to you, Judge, and uh, you are going to have to ultimately decide whether the phalanx of New York Times attorneys who follow Mr. Savage in your courtroom (laughs) um, will succeed in their uh, motion to quash Mr. Rusinello's subpoena. Now, you're not writing on a clean slate here. Uh, Mr. Savage has a colleague, James Risen, who... uh, had involvement or allegedly had involvement in the Jeffrey Sterling case. Jeffrey Sterling, a a former CIA agent who allegedly gave Mr. Risen some documents which allegedly showed up in Mr. Risen's book. Um, And the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled against uh, Mr. Risen, and that case is now before the Supreme Court. Now, I know as a good district judge, you will follow circuit precedent. But what I want to ask you is, I want to I I jump you over the Fourth Circuit here and put you on the Supreme Court and ask you, okay. from, <laughs> ask you from their perspective, from the perspective uh, of the Supremes, how are you going to weigh the competing interests here? On the one hand, the need for the criminal justice system to get evidence the need for fair trials. On the other hand, the First Amendment, the issue of how reporters are going to continue to be able to do their business if they're compelled to reveal their sources in court. How, how is that calculus going to go on in well, your head? The, there are many areas in which we create legal frameworks that enable a balance, a, a qualified privilege. We do that with respect to all sorts of protected categories, attorneys and doctors and priests, etc. The notion that you wouldn't put a journalist in this democracy into a protected category as to which there would be a qualified privilege doesn't make any sense to me. The notion that you would not. So that all that a privilege analysis enables you to do is exactly the weighing that you're describing. The Fourth Circuit suggested there was no such qualified privilege. And so the first step would be there is a privilege here in which you weigh uh, the government's interests on the one hand and the First Amendment on the the other. And you 
way the fact that information could be obtained, the, the very fabulousness of the prosecution weighs against uh, allowing the reporter to testify because they can get their information circumstantially. And that alone should suggest that you don't subpoena uh, the reporter. But the, but the first thing the Supreme Court ought to do is to set up the framework of balance, recognize the terribly important nature of the First Amendment privilege, uh, and put the government to showing that it has no other choice uh, but this alternative, which I think is not likely in most cases. Do you think it's likely in this case? Do you think Mr. Rusinello can meet his burden here? Would you like to hear argument? Sure. Well, this is, not a, this is not the food section of the New York Times that we're talking about here. We're talking about the news section, and we're talking about national security. So you want, you want a balance, Judge? Here's a balance. The national security of the United States versus corroboration of information that we've already been able to, to show some, you know, some uh, indicia of. That is, from our examination of documents and records at the company, that he's probably the only person with access and so on. But... Why should, if there is no um, newspaper source privilege, why should, under those circumstances where the national security of the United States is in play, uh, why should a reporter be immune from disclosing not the substance of the conversation, but the fact of the conversation and the person that he had the conversation with? It seems to me it's um, an easy case. David Cole, you're a constitutional lawyer. The New York Times has decided it's going to bring in the big guns and ask you to make the argument uh, on behalf of quashing the subpoena. What will you what, what in, in your mind, how will you develop this argument? Well, I think I think you have to start from the standpoint of the First Amendment. You have to start from the standpoint of the role of the press uh, in a democratic society uh, and the critical uh, role that uh, leaks uh, and um, uh, sources play for the press to do the job that is necessary to make a democracy run. And so it's not enough to say, well, we've got national security on this side and, and, and uh, you have to look at the other side. And the other side is, is equally uh, important in terms of what this, uh, what this nation is. Are you is suggesting about. that when national security is mentioned as something on one side of the scales that there's only one side of the scales? Well, I, I'm, I'm suggesting that oftentimes, too often, uh, I think people uh, stop thinking once the word national security is raised and stop thinking about the, um, the costs to other values that we might uh, consider important, whether they be privacy or whether they be uh, First Amendment uh, freedom or whether they be liberty. Uh, oftentimes we say, uh, if it's about national security, throw the rest out. And, but that's, that's not the way that our Constitution was constructed. That's not the way that a democracy ought to operate. And so I think you have to engage in the kind of fine-tuned balancing uh, that says, yes, there are legitimate national security concerns, but the question really isn't whether there are legitimate national security concerns. The question is whether you can proceed as a prosecutor in this case uh, without this uh, without uh, in, invading the, uh, the relationship between the journalist and the source. And be, on behalf of Snowman and all potential whistleblowers in the government, I'm going to seek to uh, file an amicus brief in which I'm going to rebut my friend Mr. Rosanello's proposition that just identifying whether there was a conversation versus what was said isn't enough because anybody identified as somebody who's talking to the press, even if it's being talked to out of school, and they're not saying the worst of what they could say, but they're just talking to the press, could be disciplined, would be seen as a pariah, will have something happen to them, and that will chill that exercise. And if it chills that exercise, it chills something special about what makes this country different than all other. But all and 
also and also uh-huh. national security since 9-11, both appropriately and inappropriately, has now expanded beyond reason. Um, so that just saying, intoning the word national security can never be enough. A court has to examine what that means. Uh, it can't be that every piece of information that's classified is suddenly, because somebody somewhere believes that it's terribly important, is national security. So there has to be a framework to, to, to effect a, a balance. And our, one can certainly argue that the First Amendment is all the more important in a world in which national, national security interests have uh, been used to justify so many things. There, there's an additional aspect here, too, that I think comes out in the facts of the case as we attempt to do this balancing. Right? Uh, Snowman wasn't a gatherer. Snowman was a hunter. He didn't go in there and get overwhelmed by, by, by something he didn't, didn't expect. Right? He purposefully went out and sought employment in certain locations in order to actively pursue specific items of information for his cause, for his crusade. Now, that doesn't make him a spy, right. Right? But, it, but it also doesn't make him this innocent who is overwhelmed by discovery and then blurted out stories to the press. No patriot. Yeah. Well, but he, he was engaged in this hunt because he was legitimately concerned that our government was doing to its people and the people of the world in secret, pursuant to secret interpretations of laws that never would have been accepted had they been made public. The legitimacy of his, of his motive is not established, and it would only be established uh, at trial with his testimony. And, I, and I've got to add, all right, whatever argument you want to make with regard to American privacy, and I actually, actually think uh, it doesn't sustain, all right, I find it really difficult to justify in an American court uh, why he is justified in defending Brazilian, German, French, or anyone else's privacy. Well, I mean, I might... He went out and revealed secrets about how we conduct foreign intelligence without, while we're talking about the Bill of Rights, without any Fourth Amendment implications. All right, but what David Cole says does kind of bring us to our next issue, which is your client... at least in some ways, is a very sophisticated man. And he realizes that his chances of maintaining the secrecy of his connection with Mr. Savage was probably doomed from the start. So he has a plan B. And his plan B from the start was, if they prove that I did leak the documents to Mr. Savage and to the other reporters, I want to assert a necessity defense. That is to say, okay, If you find that I did it, that I leaked the documents, I did it only because it was the lesser of evils, only because I fervently believe that what I did was less harmful than the harms that the government's programs were creating for all Americans, and that this needed to be brought out by somebody, and I was going to be that person. So... If he is to assert a necessity defense, what sort of evidence does he need to amass? What sort of evidence do you need to elicit in order to prove up? It's an affirmative defense, so you're going to have the burden of proof. So what will inform the ability to assert necessity, which is for, in its boiled-down form, that in order to prevent a greater harm to the society for which we have criminal laws to protect, I had to violate another law in order to vindicate Mm -hmm. the greater right. 
So you have to base, and you also have to show, among other things, that there wasn't many other ways for you to vindicate that right other than going forward and doing what you did. So it is both a burden and it is not insignificant. In the facts that we're discussing, though, he has quite a lot to work with. And what he has to work with are some of the things you've already heard. It's not so much, for example, that he has the right to vindicate the privacy of the Brazilian prime minister, but he does have the right to vindicate the fact that American leaders have been lying to the Congress, to the media, to the American public about what they are doing and what they aren't doing. In affirmative testimony given under oath in front of congressional committees where the question is asked, are you conducting this kind of surveillance? And the answer is, no, we are not, when now it shows that we are. That is a greater good, and if the bottom line was that you were happening to protect the privacy information of the Brazilian prime minister by showing that an American lied to Congress about it, that would be an important interest. And the last part is, I couldn't do it any other way. Because anybody else who has tried to do it another way has found out that they are stonewalled, that they are suppressed, that they are not allowed to write, that they are censored, that they are demoted, that they are fired. And so that will inform the kind of evidence. What would be the other way he could have done it? What are are the other alternatives other than talking to Savage? It depends on what the track record of people like him at that moment have been. And the track record has not been a pretty one when well, people have tried to go up the route. He's prejudging so, what the inspector general of the department would have done if so, he made this disclosure to it. He just basically said, I wouldn't have gotten any any um, uh, consideration of my complaint. There. The, the, the issue here was not whether this violated some internal departmental rule regarding the NSA that the the inspector general would be investigating. The issue was whether uh, the NSA uh, and its and the America's leaders were lying to the public in order to keep secret a program that the public needed to know about and that if the public knew about, it never would have accepted. Well, That's the problem in a democracy. It's not a problem of some internal failure. Well, then, the, then his, case is, his case is no different than the case of other sort of uh, claims of... Um, acting on a higher moral imperative, whether it's draft resistors during the Vietnam War or tax protesters or the sanctuary movement. Uh, The fact is that uh, Abby's uh, recounting here of all of the things that uh, he thinks are indicia of necessity are really just um, counters to the argument of whether or not the information itself is classifiable as in the national interest. It's become sort of a, a second trial and one that would um, probably swamp the, uh, the critical issue here because it's such, a, it's such a diversion from what the critical issue is, is whether or not he furnished this information, which was in the national interest and so on, to unauthorized persons. And, and quite frankly, they've got antenna, we've got antenna. They've got trucks, we've got trucks. I mean, but you want to call that- experts who are going to say, that, you know, this is what the defense says was the <clears throat> issue, we can, we can parade... Many, many uh, right. you know, generals it's and interesting. It's and interesting that you say that's the critical issue. And if you look at the newspapers over the last six months, there's been no dispute about the fact that Edward Snowden gave this information up and that it was classified information and that it revealed all kinds of secret programs that the government was engaging in. But the critical issue in terms of the public debate has been what in the world is our government doing? What is it doing to us? What is it doing to other people? And is this an acceptable state of affairs? That is well, the critical trial of issue. And trial the public the arena and the trial, that's what the necessity me, defense, but the trial in the public arena and the trial in court are two different things. We're having the trial in the public court because he can't, he's not subject to its jurisdiction. Oh, but there'll be 12 isn't members, that, be 12 isn't members that of the public. The nature of a necessity defense. Isn't any time a necessity defense is instructed upon and evidence is received in support of it, isn't that what happens? Isn't it essentially a turning of the tables? Exactly. To put the 
government on trial. Well, but, it also some bears, but it also, to some degree, you said a moment ago that the legitimacy of his motives was irrelevant. I mean, actually, the necessity defense is some of the ways in which he also suggested that he was not uh, subject to the espionage statute, that he was not doing this with an intent to injure or harm the United States, but had a different set of intents. So to some, some portion of this information would have to come in to contest the government's argument that he was doing this for the purposes of injuring the U.S. Not if I... And then the affirmative defense would come in uh, of necessity, and yes, it would put all this on trial. I don't have, it, that'll never come in if I charge him with furnishing. That's right. And, and not charging him with... Um, with espionage. With doing it, do, no, no, under the same statute, but that he furnishes it to an unauthorized person rather than that he does it with an intent to injure the, the national interest. If you're willing, That's not an If element. you're willing to limit your prosecution to those parts of the statute that don't require the intent to either injure the United States or to assist a foreign country, you're taking out of your panoply most of the weapons that the government has used against all the leakers well, no. and all the cases of which I am familiar. Now, Section the, 798 doesn't require right. that I um, But the First Amendment would likely require, as has um, happened in other cases, All right. Now, you, to, mentioned, I don't, you mentioned earlier yes. that they call experts, you call experts. Let's say one of the experts you call is General Hayden to talk about the justifiability, since that's now what we're talking about here, is the NSA, the justifiability of Snowden's, or Snowman's, I should say, (laughs) Freudian slip there, uh, of of his actions vis-a-vis the NSA surveillance program. So if you were to examine General Hayden, what questions would you ask him? Well, it's... It's a long time before I make the decision to call General Hayden okay. as a witness. All right. I want a scrubbed, I mean, this is inter- just among us. <laughs> of course. Um, I want a scrubbed, sanitized uh, expert who really is um, very articulate in being able to uh, answer the questions on direct and doesn't know much about what he can be asked on cross-examination. Um, I don't want to... What are you afraid that's going to come out of it? Because, I mean, he's a repository of all of that information, basically, of techniques, uh, methodologies, um, you know, uh, ancillary issues and so on and so forth that are really not relevant in this, this case, but that would look that would look bad before a jury if every time he was asked a question relating to them on cross-examination, we had to take a recess and then convene in a SEPA context... Uh, in order to determine whether or not this is something that could be inquired into. And a, and a very astute and able defense lawyer would go at him with all of these questions, whether, whether he had to do that 50 times or, or one time. Uh, so I don't want to do that. I don't want to be in a position where, in, in effect, it looks like I have... Uh, something I to have hide. Something to hide and, and, and have kept something from the jury. Now, Judge Gertner, uh, I realize that generally the attorneys are the ones who do the questioning of the witnesses, but I've been in plenty of courtrooms where the trial judge did ask questions of the witnesses. So uh, are, would be, before this case goes to the jury, are there any questions that you would ask of either General Hayden or, say, Professor Cole, who might be uh, an expert witness in this case? Well, General Hayden has, we would have to have hearings long before the trial began precisely to walk the line that was just described, the line between classified information and, and, and what he could speak about, I would have to get, get an offer of proof from uh, David Cole that he would, you know, not uh, intone about everything involving national security, but that he would talk about the significance of these particular leaks 
uh, why they were in the national interest to do these particulars, what they showed, uh, the balance that they struck in favor of the First Amendment rather than any other harm. I mean, to some degree, when you speak about the damage, um, damage that derives from the disclosure of a program that the American people should have found out about is not damage in the same it's simply, it's damage that we have to come to grips with. It's a multi-sided damage. It's damage that has two sides to it. Um, and so I would want to find out what uh, Mr. Cole would talk about in those. Oh, well, let's say, he satis- let's say they, uh, they satisfy you uh, on, on their uh, proffer of proof. What would be the gist of your testimony? Well, I think the gist of the, of the testimony would be that in, in a democracy, for a democracy to work, You need transparency from the government so that we, the people, can know whether what they're doing in our name is what we want them to be doing. And you need privacy for the citizenry so that people can develop their personalities, engage in intimate relationships, and engage in political activity without worrying that the government is watching their every move. Uh, and we have reversed that. What, what Edward Snowman has shown is that we have essentially reversed that, where the government now uh, insists that our lives be transparent to it, uh, but that its programs be secret from us. So we have a system of secret law that authorizes, uh, in, this, uh, in this instance, the NSA to collect uh, f- data on the phone, uh, the phone conversations and texts that every one of us has every day with everyone uh, who we are intimately involved with. So, so that's, a, that's a real concern. Every text I send, I, I, I pick up my daughter at school, and I send a text saying, you know, why aren't you out here? You're supposed to be out here. And she sends a text back and says, I'll be back. I'll be out in five minutes. And I send another text back. The NSA collects data on every one of those texts. It also collects data on what doctors I'm calling, what psychiatrists I'm calling, whether I'm calling my old girlfriend, whether I'm calling right. my new girlfriend. That, that, and, and they claim that we need to gather all this information. We won't look at it. Trust us. We won't look at it unless we really need to. General, where's Professor Cole wrong? He seriously confused metadata collection with content collection. And, and they're simply, they're separate, they're different, and they each have different legal and constitutional protections. And so NSA cannot read his text. Now, the metadata, no, you, you're referring to data about data? Right, fact of call. What, what NSA gets, and it the doesn't... The time of the call, the party Time the duration from and to. And NSA does not collect that. It's technically not electronic surveillance, a distinction that may not make much of a difference to most Americans. But it is provided to the National Security Agency by telephone providers throughout the United States. And so the content of those calls, those communications, is never at issue. It is, it is never recorded or put in anyone's hands, the telephone provider or the National Security Agency. Look, a lot of things the agency is doing, my old agency, NSA, are quite aggressive. All right. I understand that. I'm willing to have this second trial, this public trial. But let's let's have it based on the facts. Let's have it based on what is actually going on rather than what we'd like to pretend was going on. Breaking news. The breaking news is that the jury is back and they have a verdict. (laughs) They've convicted on the theft count, but they've hung on the espionage count. And the judge has sent him back three times already. 
they're not going to. It's eight to four. We don't know who the eight is and we don't know who the four is, but it's eight to four. You going to retry the espionage? It's eight to four for conviction. It'll be retried. If it's eight to four for acquittal, um, probably not. We learn a lot from juries, and, and, and actually, if it turns out, quite frankly, that uh, if the trial was a, uh, was a full exposition of all of the facts here, and the jury sent a message to me about the, um, uh, uh, their feeling uh, about pr- charges that I brought, I would argue strongly with my counterparts at Justice that perhaps we shouldn't. Well, he may, have to, ch- he may have to argue with the intelligence community, because what will happen is on the count of conviction in your hypothetical, there'll be a sentence. And the judge will take into account the conduct of snowmen to decide what the sentence should be, even if it was called theft. And only then will there be an appeal. And only then will the government know that they've gotten their pound of flesh. And it's often going to be the intelligence community that wants their drop of blood. Okay. And there may be not enough reason for it. Let me, let me, let me uh, ask for my drop of blood. Um, <laughs> this is the most harmful most serious hemorrhaging of legitimate American secrets in the history of the Republic. Retry it. We focused here on 215 in the metadata. We haven't even talked about 702, which is the prison program, which has to do with foreign emails, not domestic emails. All right. There are a panoply of things that this very misguided and narcissistic young man has revealed. All right. I would go for a retrial. All right. Well, in the rem- in the remaining time, Charlie Savage, we started with you. Let's end with you. You're done. <laughs> when we look back on this, when we look back on the Edward Snowman affair, when you write your book, or at least your Snowman chapter of your book on this affair, what's the takeaway? What in, in trying to get a little distance from this? What will this have meant for America? Well, for America is a key part of that question. Uh, For America, the first revelation of this whole eventually dizzying array of revelations that continues to cascade around us about what the NSA does and how it does it, the very first one was of the 215 metadata program, the revelation that every uh, time you pick up the phone and call someone local, even the government is keeping a record of that. That, I think, remains the most important because it affects the rights of all Americans. Now that it's known, it chills the rights of all Americans. Uh, And it is the central debate domestically uh, of whether the, uh, the country will tolerate this and accept it or not, which remains unresolved. Um, over time, there's been more and more revelations about what the NSA is doing overseas, you know, tapping Angela Merkel's cell phone. And these uh, the, the privacy rights of Brazilians and Frenchmen and Canadians and so forth. And these do not raise the same domestic constitutional and legal policy issues. From an American perspective, I think there's less interest in that as a result. From a global perspective, there's more interest. The whole world is on fire now uh, with the impression that the uh, American government is up in their business to a degree that no one had thought possible uh, in a way that the sort of myopic or maybe parochial view of the Americans are still focused on what about my phone calls. 
Uh, and so how you frame the question of what's the most important thing and what's the long-term consequences of this, I think, depends greatly on what is, where is the person sitting who is being asked to evaluate that question. And if we're sitting in America? If we're sitting in America, the Patriot 215 program, I think, remains the most important revelation, uh, the one the country still uh, is trying to grapple with. All right. Panelists, thank you for speaking legally. No one expects Edward Snowden to face trial in the United States anytime soon, if ever. But the genie is out of the bottle, and it is anything but certain where it will ultimately lead. I'm Evan Lee. Major funding for Legally Speaking was provided by the law firm of Girardi Keith, fighting for the right side. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.